Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. I'm very happy to be reintroducing this author special with Ocean Wong. We first aired this episode back in July 2019, and it was recorded in the studio when Ocean was on the international tour for his novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. I was sadly away at the time, so Octavia flew solo for this interview. It's a really rich and beautiful conversation, full of the kind of thoughtful insights Ocean is known for, but also a lightness and optimism that feels just right for summer. And we also thought it would coincide nicely with the publication of Ocean's latest book, a poetry collection called Time as a Mother, which is out now. But before we get to the show, because the original episode was an extended cut of the conversation I had with Ocean, it doesn't include any recommendations. And we did not want to go without shouting out some other books, did we, Carrie? We did not. So we're going to tell you about something we read and loved lately and something we can't wait to read over the summer. Let's start with something you've read and loved lately. How about you, Octavia? What have you read and loved lately? I recently read the novel Kairos by the German author Jenny Erpenberg and translated by Michael Hoffman. And it's a phenomenal book. She's a really, really masterful writer. You know, when you are in a novel with a writer and you just feel in the safest pair of hands possible, the style's very tight and very cleverly done, very claustrophobic. And it's a story of this complicated love affair that begins in 1989 in Berlin, when the woman is 19 and the man is well into his 30s. We're in East Berlin. And it spans the following six years, which are basically the last six years of the GDR's existence. And it's set against this political collapse and ultimately the fall of the Berlin Wall and, you know, history changes forever. And basically the arc of their relationship is really carefully crafted to mirror the feelings of living under that kind of regime. So it moves gradually from the classic kind of romantic idealism of a new love, but also of a new political hope, right? And then it slides into abuse of power in the way that these things tend to, right? When you're under the control of of, of a tightly controlled political system. And so she writes about the complexities of intimacy and desire, and also hope, and lack of hope so, so well. She grew up in East Germany, so there's quite a lot of her own experience woven through. And what I love about her writing is there are no clean lines in the sand at all. Her emotional world is is messy and mixed, and you're in the gray area the whole way through, which feels very, very true to life. But she's also asking big philosophical questions. So I, yeah, read it. I think you in particular, Carrie, would love it, actually. Sounds wonderful. And of course, it was recommended by Laurie Moore on our last show. So that's two hearty recommendations from Octavia and Laurie. That's right. I've forgotten that Laurie had recommended it. (laughs) Sorry, I felt I needed to say. Well, I'm doubling up. What's yours? What about you? Well, I have just really enjoyed listening to the audiobook of The Goldfinch. Yeah which is, of course, by Donna Tartt, and which I know made you very happy. We texted about it a bit as it was happening and afterwards. It was very (laughs) wonderful to have you as a companion on my journey. But The Goldfinch, if you don't know it, is the story of Theo, who is basically in the Met when a terrorist bomb goes off and his mother is killed. And he leaves the Met with a, a certain painting, The Goldfinch, of the title by Carol Fabritius, which, who is a, a kind of famous Dutch master. And then it's sort of about how his life spins out from there. 
but it's it's a very Dickensian tale. It's about so many things. It takes in so many locations. It's in Las Vegas. It's in Amsterdam. It's about furniture restoration and <laughs> fine art and criminality. And it's baggy at points, but it is so delightful. And the way she writes about things like art and the objects that pass through our lives and what will remain long after we are dead is just when she's at her highs, she is really, really at her highs. I love the way she describes Las Vegas, for instance, the kind of desert light. And I don't know, I, I think it holds up. There's some, you know, more actually kind of racist things that I don't think would pass muster today, which mm. I'm interested to hear if anybody else had that experience of reading it recently. But it's a it's a really wonderful novel, I think. I she's she's just an incredibly talented writer. And I think the last page in particular sort of, you know, almost made up for some of the points where I wasn't getting along with the story as much. So yeah, Yeah. I loved it. Also, she gave us Boris, who is one of the greatest characters of contemporary literature. Yeah. The reader really leaned into his Russian accent in this audiobook. So oh, be wow. prepared for that if you, if you go for it. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so what are you excited to read over the summer? Well, I can't choose one. I'm sorry. So I'm cheating and I'm going to shout out two, but I'm going to be very quick about it. So the first one is Intimacies by Katie Kitamura, which I've been wanting to read for ages. And it's about an interpreter who is adrift in her own life and she gets drawn into a complicated love affair and a political controversy. So I think it's actually quite a good counterpart to the Jenny Erpenbeck, actually. And the other one is this hot new proof that literally came through my letterbox last week, which is Melissa Broder's latest novel called Death Valley. And it's billed as a darkly funny novel about grief that becomes a desert survival story, which I'm already hooked. (laughs) But I mean, to be honest, I'd read a shopping list written by Broder. So I'm like, you know, preaching to the choir or whatever. What about you? I want to read both of those books and have copies of both to read. So maybe we can read alongside each other. Please. I love to live text you while I'm reading. It's my <laughs> favorite too. thing. It's like when I finally read the Ferrante books, and oh, I yeah. was so pleased to be able to mouth off about Nino Saratori to you by text. <laughs> it was one of the great pleasures of my life, both reading them <laughs> and experiencing you reading them. Um, <laughs> but I am really looking forward to reading The Summer Book by Tova Janssen which is a book published in 1972. And, and Jansen is best known as the author of the Moomin books. But this is a book for adults uh, set on a Finnish island about uh, a grandmother and her granddaughter and basically a summer that they spend on that island. And it's based on Jansen's own experience um, summering in the Gulf of Finland. And everyone tells me it's just this very beautiful evocation on an island about our relationship with nature, about the beginning of life and also the end and I, I just love her voice of everything I've read of it. So I can't wait to experience this, especially because it's the summer. Yeah, perfect. Sounds wonderful. Okay. So before we get to the interview, Octavia, can you tell us a little bit about Ocean? I would be delighted. Ocean Vuong is an American poet and novelist born in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, and raised in Hartford, Connecticut in the United States. His debut poetry collection, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, was published in 2016 and won the T.S. Eliot and Forward Prizes. And his debut novel, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, was published in 2019 and is now being adapted for the screen by A24, which is very exciting. He's just published his second poetry collection, Time is a Mother, which was written after his mother died and explores memory, loss, addiction and love. 
The conversation you're about to hear is about Ocean's novel and is one of my favorites from the archive. I still think about it all these years later. It's a really wonderful interview. I think you two had a connection. Ocean Fong, thank you for joining me here on Literary Friction. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we've asked you to start with a reading, so could you set that up for us, please? Yeah, um, essentially, it's a, a sex scene between uh, these two boys, the protagonist, little dog, uh, who's the speaker, and uh, a 15-year-old um, white boy he meets while working on a tobacco farm outside of Hartford, Connecticut. Um, he's two years older than little dog. Trevor and his daddy lived alone in an Easter yellow mobile home behind the interstate. That afternoon, his old man was out laying red brick walkways for a commercial park out in Chesterfield. The white door frames in the mobile home were stained pink with fingerprints, a house colored with work, which meant a house colored with exhaustion, disrepair. The rug uprooted, so no one got a clean, but the hardwood never waxed and polished, and you could feel the hammered-down nails through your socks. The cabinet doors were torn off to make it easy. There was a cinder block under the sink to hold the pipes. In the living room, above the couch, was a duct-tape poster of Neil Young, guitar in hand, grimacing into a song I've never heard. In his room, Trevor turned on a Sony stereo hooked to two speakers set on a dresser and bobbed his head as a hip-hop beat intensified through the amp. The beats were interspersed with recordings of gunshots, men shouting, a car peeling off. Have you heard this yet? It's this new dude, Fitty Scent, Trevor smiled. Pretty dope, huh? A bird flew past the window, making the room seem to blink. I've never heard of him, I lied. Why, I'm not quite sure. Maybe I wanted to give him the power of the small knowledge over me. But I'd heard it before, many times, as it was played that year through endless passing cars and opened apartment windows back in Hartford. The entire album, Get Rich or Die Tryin', was burned bootleg on hundreds of blank CDs, bought in 40 packs for cheap from Walmart or Target, so that the whole North Side echoed with a kind of anthem of Curtis Jackson's voice fading in and out of intelligibility as you rode your bike through the streets. Under the covers, we made friction of each other and fiction of everything else. He had shaved his head in the sink that day, and the bits of hair pricked us everywhere we moved, our fingers lost around belt buckles. A band-aid, loosened from sweat and heat, hung from his elbow, its plastic film scraping my ribs as he climbed on top of me, searching. Under my fingers, the stretch marks above his knees, on his shoulders, and the base of his spine shone silver and new. He was a boy breaking out and into himself at once. That's what I wanted. Not merely the body, desirable as it was, but its will to grow into the very world that rejects its hunger. Then I wanted more. The scent, 
the atmosphere of him, the taste of French fries and peanut butter underneath the salve of his tongue, the salt around his neck from the two-hour drives to nowhere and a Burger King at the edge of the county, a day of tense talk with his old man, the rust from the electric razor he shared with that old man. How I would always find it on his sink in its sad plastic case, the tobacco, weed and cocaine smoke on his fingers mixed with motor oil, all of it accumulating into the after scent of wood smoke caught and soaked in his hair, as if when he came to me, his mouth wet and wanting, he came from a place on fire, a place he could never return to. And what do you do to a boy like that but turn yourself into a doorway? a place he can go through again and again, each time entering the same room. Yes, I wanted it all. I drove my face into him as if into a climate, the autobiography of a season, until I was numb. Close your eyes, he said, shaking. Don't want you seeing me like this. But I opened them anyway, knowing that in the dim everything looked the same, like you're still sleeping, but in our hurry, our teeth collided. He made a hurt sound, then turned away, suddenly embarrassed. Before I could ask if he was okay, he resumed, his eyes half-opened as we locked, slick and smooth now, deeper, then lower, toward the waistband's elastic resistance, the snap never coming, the fabric's rustle at my ankles, my cock, the bead of moisture at its tip, the coldest thing between us. Thank you. That was really wonderful. Thank you. And I think it sets up really well one of the central themes, which is, you know, desire. Desire and longing, for me, really come across so strongly in this novel. Um, and I want to ask you lots of questions about that, but I want to start just for our listeners, for anyone who hasn't read it. Um, you know, the novel is called On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, and it's ranges through identity, language, love, desire, America, violence, like it's doing a lot. Yeah. And it's amazing. It never feels like it runs away from you. Mm. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about how the story came to you. Was it one strand that spoke to you initially or did it come in some kind of like amazing cloud of inspiration? I think I wanted to embrace the minutia of American life as points of value and illumination. Often when we think of literature, we think of timelessness. And that's often, I think, a patriarchal gaze. When we mm. think of what's my legacy, you know, it's often men who create statues to stand after they're long gone. And I, I felt like a queerer way to approach it is to pr approach the debris of a life. And in this uh, section, you know, it's it's the debris that accumulates into a person and to look at the detritus around us, that these are actually the autobiography of a person, what they use, what they spend, what they expend, the songs they carry with them, the music they listen to, uh, where they are, the food they eat, all of these things that are deemed mundane or markers of time right? Uh, we, we lean towards abstractions as um, timelessness. But I think my way of thinking about it is that to interrogate the value and validity of timelessness, is it really that great? Timeless things are actually quite damaging. Nuclear generators are timeless. 
plastic is timeless, and these notions of forever are destroying our planet and our world. And I wonder if ephemerality or timestamps are actually sites of power because they are immediate to how we live now. It's a really interesting way of thinking of things. Yeah, I agree. Also, you know, men make statues to other men, don't they? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but also, just listening to you speaking then, I was thinking, well, sex is a kind of perfect antidote to all of that because it's so momentary. It's so uh, it's so in and of itself. It's not, obviously, there's a way of looking at it in terms of kind of heteronormative procreation that is about legacy. But when you take it separate from that, when you look at it in a queer context, it's sensation. And it's also, you know, two bodies meeting allows you into that detritus. Like as you were speaking, I was thinking in your reading, you know, you described the taste of peanut butter, like all of these things that for me as a Brit are like yeah. quintessentially American, you <laughs> right, know, right, like met right. through the bodies of this queer sexual experience. Right. Yeah. And the, and the body as a temporal entity separate yeah. from these architectures of state and nation and, right. you know, all of that is so present in this work, right. identity you know and so let's let's I'm, I'm like spinning off I've got too yeah. many things I want to say to you but yeah. let's think about the, the narrator little dog mm. who is Vietnamese American um and you know his voice is so singular he's an incredibly beautiful character I found him so real and um uh you know I, I'm sort of carrying him with me um but how did you discover that voice I wanted to write a book that beckoned an autobiographical reading and but ultimately refuse it and and you know claim agency as an artist for myself um as a way to say that these lives that you know the mainstream or the the more dominant modes of media might pass by these lives are not um simply blurred faces that we move past they have interior um richness, that they have drama, they have desire and joy. And as much as I could have put all these folks into a different setting, a different stage, a different time, you know, ancient China or something, um, I wanted them to be here and I wanted them to be recognizable as those of my kin and my milieu um, of Hartford, New England life. Um, it was important to me to say that here's my chance as a writer, particularly as a writer of color. You know, often writers of color write autobiographical novels first. And it's no coincidence because it's dizzying and tempting to arrive at the blank page. And I think a lot of writers of color take the opportunity of that power to cast dignity and worth into the people who made them. And I think I took that same opportunity and made these characters. And, and Little Dog, it is fiction because Little Dog is better than me. You know, he's uh, he's more patient, you know, and that's the beautiful thing about creating a character is you get to put 12 drafts, in this case, into them. And Ocean Vong only gets one draft at life. You know, I get one draft, I get one try. Um, but Little Dog got 12, you know, work-throughs and uh, he's better. He's he's my ideal, you know, in in a way. The autobiographical novel is the phantom of the future. We, we write the ghosts of the future. Usually we think of the ghosts as something that remains after the body leaves. But I think the, the novel is the predecessor of a potentiality, the ghost before its fleshed reality. 
Did you have to restrain yourself from making him too good? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think he, I didn't want him to be a hero. Right. You know, I didn't actually didn't want him to be a protagonist. And that's one way of looking at this book is without a plot uh, with conflict, what you have, you gain people. And I, w I would argue that every character in this book is a protagonist. And the book opens and exhibits itself more like a flower. Every person, every thread is a one petal on the flower, but you need all the petals to have the identity recognizable as rose or tulip. You need all of them. And it, it, it doesn't work in a linear fashion. It works in a total simultaneity of all of these folks standing side by side, creating a bloom. Yeah, it's, uh, the characters of Little Dog's mother, Rose or Hong, and grandmother, Lang. I'm not sure if I'm mm -hmm. pronouncing it right. Yeah, that's pretty um, good. Uh, I agree that they're, they're just as full and rich. We're just not inside their consciousness. But yeah. because of their importance to Little Dog's identity and his experience of the world, they, they as you say, they're just as vital. Um, and, and the novel is, is structured loosely as a letter to Little Dog's mother. Mm -hmm. Did you find that a freeing way to write? What drew you to that as a as a loose form for the whole thing? It's a it's a wonderful way to write in in the way my mind thinks as a poet. The poet works in tangents, and I was curious of how tangent and the detour, the parenthetical, which is a very to me a very queer um, way of thinking, and. And even a feminist way of thinking, which is to say, I'm not going to go down that route. I'm going to go this way, I'm going to go that way. And because often, you know, um, people criticize queer folks and women of thinking uh, circuitously, right? Having a scrambled way, whereas men think straightforward and clear. And I wanted to, instead of embodying clarity as a way of saying, well, I too can do it, I'm more interested to say that, you know, the circumnavigating method is actually a preferable one and one that leads you to discover more things. And not every detour, even if it arrives at a dead end, is useless. To be lost is not to be wrong. It's to be more. Yeah, it's way less didactic. You know, you, you it leaves space for the reader to enter themselves into the narrative as well, I think. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I, I love the way that the form of this novel breaks down in places and becomes something closer to pure poetry. I mean, your prose is intensely poetic anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to ask you about how it felt expanding your craft, I suppose, from poet to novelist and yeah. whether that was, you know, a, a, an exciting prospect or, or a frightening one. But I also wanted to ask if how you feel about the division between those modes as well and whether yeah. you think it's useful. Yeah, they are. They are. It is useful. It is different. Um I think I was uh, interested in the novel as a form because poetry let me off the hook as far as um, my use of it. I got so good at ending the poem. Too good for me. Like I got, not like good as successful, but like I can do it. I can find the exit. I can sneak out of the poem as soon as things get hot. And I found myself doing that a little too much, you know. And and as an artist, I'm interested in challenging myself. And I thought, well, what if instead of making these little windows, I make a whole world and I have to just, I have to just be there. I have to tend to it from start to finish. I have to remain in the scene 
after it's over. I have to follow these characters into the next day, into the next month. I have to write their prehistory, their present, and their future. And that excited me as a way of expanding my inquiry as an artist, that the novel did not let me off the hook. And I knew I wanted to to write a novel that collapses. Often when we think of the charge of the great American novel, it is supposed to be a monolithic, often written by a white man, statement of a generation. And I felt that for me to participate under that thesis, a more faithful rendition of that is disintegration. That the an American novel is not monolithic. It's actually made of jagged fractures because the country is made of jagged fractures. Its origin and genesis is one of slavery and Native American genocide. Those are just facts. And I wanted to have a work that embodied that. And I knew that halfway through, the floor of prose had to fall apart. But whereas a novelist, a straight novelist might be wary of prose falling apart, I knew that it would be okay, that when prose crumbles, it lives as poetry. And poetry, in fact, is a form that breaks itself towards unity. And and I wanted to say that you can collapse, you can fail, and then you can keep going. And the book picks itself up as prose after the, the poetic fractures. Yeah, it's, it, it's so effective. And I think because they're because the division between what comes before and what comes after that fragmentation isn't that the the division isn't that marked yeah. in some ways, right? Because yeah. of the way that you write, Absolutely. it felt incredibly natural, and I think it. I can imagine it doesn't feel alienating to people, even if they're not readers of poetry, right. you know, right. um, which is very skillful. Because um, failing is natural, and yeah. it's a part of life, and it's it's queer too. Well, you know, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, so like 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 we never got as queer folks, we never get the conversation about the birds and the bees from right. my parent. And in our societies in the West, failure is taboo. It's a shameful thing. You don't talk about a losing record. You don't talk about getting fired. You keep it quiet. You hide it. And you're you're out of the limelight. You're off the stage. But for queer folks, failure is a praxis of self-knowledge. Because we never had role models, to find pleasure, we had to do it ourselves. We have to stumble. We have to f- falter at it. And through that faltering, we know how to be better with our bodies and, and to find and harvest pleasure from each other. And I would say that one thesis this book uh, suggests is that failure is the first stage to innovation. I agree. And I think it's such a shame that heteronormative culture is so rule-based for so many right because it's it denies human beings of that exploration and that chance right and it's one of the things that's so rich about queer experience it obviously comes with a lot of burdens but like it's one of the beautiful things that i think queer texts can bring to a straight audience right you know can right. inspire people maybe to get inside themselves a bit yeah. more and yeah. be less in in Communication with external ways of being sometimes, right, I think. Right, as al- alternative, yeah. as an alternative, yeah. which is why I was I was interested in writing about submission. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I really wanted to ask you about that because yeah. I found that very, um, I found that you articulated something that, I, that I've been thinking about for a long time as a woman and as a feminist, 
that submission can be a form of power um, because it's it's one of the roots to power that's available to women and queer people, yes. right? It's like one of the spaces that's just always available to us yes. because we're always in relation to this dominant right. structure. Right. Um, but also in the book, it comes up in, in the context of sex and it's Little Dog and Trevor having sex. And the line that stuck out for me is, is because submission I soon learned was also a kind of power. And I, it made me think about the way that within sex, we can work through these external structures in a in an intentional mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. and maybe find new ways of relating to them. So it felt like to me in that scene, little dog, you know, he comes to the knowledge that that submission can be power in relation to his lover. Right. But maybe it's something that then we can all carry into the world with us. Right. But wh- I wonder what do you think of submission as a queer, as a kind of queer position in the world? Yeah. And it's often a position that we don't get a choice in. Right, exactly. And so, you know, you were absolutely right when you say it's the one that's available, mm. most readily available to us. And with that submission, you have all the other connotations that are often seen as defaults um, or uh, defects in, 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 the, in, in a body, which is, uh, you know, being small, soft-spoken, um, you know, uh, tongue-tied slash introspective. Right. And so I think it was important for me to recast these spaces because growing up as a queer Asian male, you know, the 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 creed de cour of the moment was to have bodies embody heteronormative straight ideals. Right. So we said we want a more machismo Asian male. And I agree, we should have that. Everyone should be open to that. But what about those who don't want that? Is that means they are stuck in a stereotypical site of failure? Is the only way for a woman to succeed, for example, is to be Wonder Woman? What if there are, there's other methods? And I think it's not about saying one is better than the other. It's more about offering an alternative passage of power. I just didn't want to conform as a way of saying we made it in the same way that I don't know if you know, having more queer folks in the military is necessarily progress. You know, putting a rainbow sticker on a machine gun doesn't necessarily make me feel good any better about being queer, you know, when we're still killing children in the Middle East and as we did in Vietnam. Um, And so I think it's about interrogating alternative paths of progress. And submission is that site um, to, to stubbornly say that, what if this is pleasurable? Can it also be power? And that's actually, to me, more subversive than conforming or or inhabiting um, what a machismo man does. This this mode says, I don't want to be uh, that. I don't want to, as a queer person, be a Donald Trump or, <laughs> or or be a John Wayne. You know, I don't want to be a dominator. There's another path here, and it's just as powerful, if not more. And I think the book really asks for different routes in that way. Yeah. And one of the things I loved about it is in the character Trevor, who is, you know, an all-American boy of a particular sort growing up in a particular way. And um, there are moments where it seems like you expect, like the reader, as the reader, we expect him to go a certain way. And actually he turns and he subverts the expectation and is gentle and loving and kind. And I... I thought that was really wonderful because he's the kind of character that 
it would have been very easy for him to be very predictable, right? Yeah. And it felt like you were offering that alternative space for for all people, not for just, people. you know, characters who might identify more with Little Dog. But right. it also felt like there's space for people who might identify with Trevor to be right. like, you can be all of these things. You can skin squirrels and, you know, take Oxy and yeah. actually be, you know, have a level of internalized homophobia that's very painful. Yeah. And still not be cruel. And still love sunflowers. Exactly. And sunsets. Exactly. You know, and, and be tender. And tender. Yeah. And be merciful. Yeah. And compassionate. And I think that was the perhaps the most challenging and pervasive inquiry I had into Trevor's character as a white boy, which is, can he, can he survive it? Mm. Can he survive his ancestry? Can he survive his elders? Um, because if he chooses tenderness, he betrays them. And what is the price of a white boy interrogating his hegemonic masculinity in order to choose freedom for himself. What is the cost? That was the real question for me. And I think it was a question that allows us to think about the future. Mm. Can, can we give each other permission to say no to the structures that fail us in order to find new ways of living? And, and you're absolutely right. He, he, you know, Max Porter, uh, a great novelist here who I talked to yesterday, he said the same thing. He says, I kept expecting Trevor to hurt Little Dog. And so much so that Little Dog expects it. He mishears this crucial moment in the barn because of course he mishears. To be other in America is to be displaced, even the way you think is displaced. So you start to mishear the world. It's a derangement of the senses through uh, trauma. And But Trevor offers this moment of tenderness and it's his moment where he breaks completely free of everything around him and be, he becomes fully himself. And, and that's, that's kind of what I hope. And I know it's real because I lived it and I've seen folks who, who break out and, and it's, it's a beautiful, complicated, but very, very costly and dangerous thing. Yeah. It, it comes over that way. But also the thing I loved about it is it's just so optimistic. Mm. And it's funny, you know, it's a book that contains a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of trauma. And yet, for me, it's it's an optimistic story, right? Because because you are offering these alternative ways of being and showing that. I love the way that you show how complex all of these things are without any judgment, mm -hmm. um, and that kind of brings me to to talking about little dog and his mother, who have, you know, a relationship that includes a lot of violence, yeah. and it made me think about. Um, what a, there's a psychoanalyst called Donald Winnicott who writes about the good enough mother. Mm -hmm. And he says that, you know, the good enough mother can withstand the full violent force of a child's love mm -hmm. and also anger yeah. without disintegrating. Right. And I kept thinking of that when I was reading the scenes between Little Dog and his mother. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's a really powerful thought. And it made me think that intense relationship, especially a single child, single parent relationship, which you know, is very, very intense. And here we also have Little Dog's grandmother who's in the mix. Right. Um, but I I sort of wonder, do you think that that kind of love can ever exist free from violence? Or do you think there's always violence folded in, whether or not that's enacted on the body yeah. or just kind of in the dynamic? I would hope it can, but I'm more leaning towards accepting that it won't because our species has proven itself to be a violent one. 
even on the smallest domestic planes to the larger geopolitical ones, all the way back to Gilgamesh and Homer and the Iliad. We, we, we are ones who wage war, whether it's a psychological, private, or large. Um, that's who we are. And so I'm more interested with that in mind, with, with those thousands of years in mind, to think, how do we accept each other then? How do we find a way to live, not come to terms, and not even forgive. I'm not interested in forgiveness, particularly as it articulates itself in language, because it can easily be weaponized. The word forgiveness becomes a threshold. Do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? Say yes, right? And then it's like now all of a sudden there's this force. And is forgiveness as easy as saying yes, as crossing this black and white line? Or on the other hand, you know, uh, you know, uh, I forgive you. To, to just say it's over, right? I don't know how useful that is. If it's just a, a, a line that we jump across, um, I'm more interested in understanding. And to understand someone is to accept and investigate the roots of their suffering. I wanted this book to work as almost this, um, this Rubicon of myriad thinking, on these characters. Often women are portrayed in literature as these side uh, characters either doomed or uh, put on a pedestal, and, but they're props regardless. They're these two-dimensional props. And I wanted to say it's not about good and evil. It's about human life and finding a way to live as usefully as possible despite the horrors. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the legacy... I mean, with Lan and, and Rose, the legacy is these absent men who were violent towards them. And they kicked them out. And they kicked them out. <laughs> right. Yeah. These women who had very little structural power had this immense emotional power um, to be able to cut that tie yeah. and take what came to right. them, right? Which is extraordinary right. to think about it like that. Yeah. And there's a moment where... Lan, the grandmother and little dog, is massaging Rose after her day at the nail bar, laying face down. And little dog said, maybe this is a family. And I think I, that's another moment of alterity for me, that we often we think, oh, well, he has no father. It's a broken home, right? If there's no man, then it's broken. Um, or on the, on, the, on the other side, if there's no woman, then it's also broken. But I, for me, I thought, if there's enough love, regardless of who's there, that's a family. That's a complete family. And I wanted to show that without romanticizing the women as women warriors or heroes uh, who, who survive war and go on to triumph in raising this boy. I wanted to say, you know, men create wars and it's women who clean them up. They clean them up psychologically, emotionally, and they heal broken bodies back to health. What is the cost then? They're, they don't do that with, for nothing. The cost is their own interior life, their own mental health, um, their physical health, their bodies bend and break at the price of repair. And that's something we rarely think about when we think about war. We think it's ending at, in 1975, and that's it, it's over. But this is the aftermath. Yeah, the legacy lives on. Yeah. And, and the other thing that's robbed from those women is their chance to have a creative life as mm -hmm. well, you know? Like... There's an absence of space for, for women who are picking up those pieces to, to make art as well. Yeah. And so you lose that perspective. Right. 
and, and yet they have the capability of recognizing beauty, but yeah. they can't make it. They can't really do it. You're, you're right. You know, Rose knows that a hummingbird is beautiful. Lan knows that even though she has no idea what they're called, these violet flowers on the road are beautiful. And she teaches little dog to harvest them, but they don't have a name for it. They recognize beauty, but they don't have the resources to make it. Yeah, but they do have these stories that they tell him. And that's the thing I found, like, little dog who becomes a writer and later on in the, in the book writes about writing, which which I want to, to come to in a second. Yeah. But um, it felt to me like, you know, he's carrying the creative energies of his grandmother and his mother. Right. And his grandmother, who is this fabulously um, other character, right, and that mm -hmm. she kind of treads the boundary between reality and unreality. Yeah. Um, and, you know... Is it is it mental illness? Is it dementia? Is it trauma? What yeah, is it? You know, right. she's living within this cloud of all these different things, but yeah. you render her in a way that's very real. Mm. And um, you know, sometimes those characters can can become awkward, uh, like magical. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and yeah. you manage not to do that, which yeah. brought me a lot of joy because that, right. it's a difficult line to tread. I it's think, isn't difficult. it, when you're yeah. writing somebody like that? Yeah. Um, but I, I think in in little dog's voice, you feel that part of his grandmother, and you feel the kind of pragmatism of his mother mm -hmm. coming mm -hmm. through him. So it feels like this incredibly creative, generative act right. of those two women was kind of bringing up this kid, yeah, who then goes on to create something. Which right. you know, it's a, that's like a, a lovely idea of a way of queering legacy. Yes, and queering the coming of age story. Right. You know, we think of Sylvia Plath, and we think of J.D. Salinger, two you know, to uh, totems of the, the coming of age, uh, you know, novel, Th those books exist in a very short span of time, right? They're just in a few months and Salinger a week, right? And, and it has no prehistory. It has no elder that informs the body. It's often focused on the self and then it either release by going to college or the end of high school. And I wanted a coming of age story to embrace the elders as a part of the link, you know, and I think that's where I really resisted the American mythos of independence. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm pull yourself from this, your bootstraps, be the be the, the the isolated phenomenon of the self, and it creates this myth of the self arising hero. But I wanted my hero to be tied to these, you know, faulty, beautiful, smart and emotionally intelligent women who inform him. And his coming of age is through their hands, through their histories, as much as it is through his own. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's a very powerful idea. Um, and, you know, the way, when we get to the point where he starts writing about writing, one of the things I loved is when he talks about politics and the way that people are snobby about political writing. Right. Um, and, um, I'm just hunting for the question on my uh, notes. Here we go. Yeah, he mm -hmm. writes about uh, the idea that, you know, to write creatively and politically at the same time is somehow dirty, you know, right. that like truly elevated art exists above the political. And that's making me think again about what you were saying about the kind of hegemonic traditional mm -hmm. way of looking at things right. and then a queerer way, which of course embraces politics because... To be queer involves being political because you are always cast in relation to this Absolutely. dominant narrative, right? Absolutely. Um, 
But I wonder, you know, do you think of this, or just actually before I ask this question, in case uh, listeners haven't read it, there's a strand of the book that's about the opioid crisis and people taking Oxycontin and fentanyl recreationally and lots of little dog's friends don't make it, um, including his lover who mm-hmm. who passes away because of his drug uh, problem. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask you, do you think of this as a political book? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't sit down to write a political book, but I think... And I tell my students this, you know, I'm a creative writing professor and I say, you know, to engage in the politics is to engage in your world. It's your job to look at the world. You know, writing is the last part. It's 90% looking and thinking. And if you're not thinking about politics, you're not doing your job. doesn't mean you have to write a searing political indictment of anything. But everything we touch on in the world is political. You know, even a water bottle, where does it come from? Where will the plastic end up? Who gets to access it? Who doesn't get to access it? Political. And, you know, look at the Dubliners by James Joyce, right? Standard, traditional white male writer. It's an incredibly political book. Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, incredibly political book. And in the same way as To the Lighthouse, that chapter that you mentioned is a moment where Little Dog almost stops the narration of the book, to explain his role as a writer to his mother, to say why he's doing this. And of course, knowing that it is a novel, that these two people are having a conversation on a stage where the audience or the reader is watching, um, it is also uh, a performance um, to the to the reader, to the world. And I think it's important. We often say in writing classes, show, don't tell. But that's often a white male's game, right? Because they don't have to tell. The world is assumes knowledge for them. And I think for me, we can do both. You know, and I showed a lot in most of the book. And then at that in that chapter towards the end, I start to tell. And I think it's we can we can do both. And we do need to explain our world because it's not legible to others often. Sometimes it's not even legible to a mother right? And why am I doing this? You know, you don't read. Why, why does your son obsess with these tiny things? My own mother says, you know, don't your eyes hurt? They look like ants. <laughs> You're just looking at a bunch of dead ants, you know? And so to validate ourselves to our loved ones is sometimes the same act as validating ourselves to the world, which has more power and might ignore and eliminate us if they don't see are worth. Mm. And so embedded into this book is also a way to read it. Right, absolutely. And all, but also to validate ourselves to ourselves, I think for many writers it's how we understand ourselves is through transcribing into words the You're things right. that we've seen or experienced. You're right. And um, I, I am just talking to writers too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's that way, that way of processing. Right. Um I mean another another moment where I suppose you tell rather than show is some of the passages about opiates and about oxycontin and fentanyl in particular and i wanted to ask you about that because you know it that those there's some sort of stats and figures about them and about the way big pharma operates in the united states at the moment which is very frightening Mm -hmm. um and it's uh snippets that have come across the pond to us here in the uk through you know scary news stories basically and um, reading it in the context of a of a novel, in the context of characters that you've met emotionally, yeah. rather than sort of through journalism, right. um, 
but the fact that you still go there into those facts I thought was really important and something I haven't seen often. Right. Um, and I wondered if that was, again, something that you were very conscious of doing or was it just something you wanted to include, didn't give it that much thought, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was part of the conscious rhetoric, mm-hmm. you know, part of the the build, the strategy of the book. Any book is intimacy with characters. Right. right? And so by the time that section in the opioids come up, you know, we're almost 200 pages in and we know all these characters. Maybe you care for them, maybe you don't, but you know them. And I always felt that facts change, their power, their impact change, depending on the proximity of those around them. And so when these facts finally come, we realize that these folks, these folks that we've got to know as singular people were always under the orchestration of larger systems that you saw them as a means to make money, not as individuals. And I wanted to see how brutal that that was to these characters. And also that a work of fiction can still be interrupted by facts. The fiction is not a privilege uh, of hiding or turning away, that I wanted to actually interrupt my own storytelling with hard boiled research facts as a way of saying that regardless of what story we make, whether it's a triumphant arc, a beautiful arc, a redemptive one, I did not want these bodies to fall away from the facts that never change. Because after this book is finished, the bodies are still lost. This community, New England particularly, is battered. You know, the sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, folks of all genders and size and race have been destroyed and slaughtered by this epidemic. And a novel won't change that. And so I wanted those facts to stand on their own. It's very important. Um, And hearing you describe that, it makes me, I don't know, it makes me want more of that kind of writing in the world, I think, that brings the poetic and the factual together Mm -hmm. because you know yes a novel won't change that but at the same time it can reframe it um and it can make something that can feel quite distant as a news item feel very proximate yeah and that one way of writing a new novel is to stop the novel right and what do you have after that that's the exciting moment for the writer if you were to stop your own novel what will you say in that pause you know and for me it was it was these facts. Yeah, yeah. Well, that brings me to a- another thing I, I was really struck by. When Little Dog says, he's talking about destruction and art and pain and art and the relationship between these things. And he says, but why can't the language for creativity be the language of regeneration? And I think this is so important because that age old trope of art coming from pain and drama and trauma you know it exists for a reason a lot of great art has come from those Mm. things but it's not a prerequisite yes and also there is a way of approaching those things that that is um through optimism or through positivity or with a desire to create something new rather than kind of just crack open the pain and the trauma and i think you know it made me excited to read that because it's something i think about a lot and i think about in in the context of a world that is struggling you know um, is there a way that we can represent the world that we're in that is somehow also optimistic? Right. Um, right. And generative. Generative. Yeah. And language is the way to do that. I agree, exactly. Yeah. yeah. We often think, you know, you have to be a writer, you have to be a teacher, you have to have a, be a, in a position of power to change things. But when it comes to language, it's our most democratic tool. 
if you if you're tired of the way we talk, you can change it right now. The next conversation, you don't have you can abandon everything that came before you that didn't work. And we're doing that. And it's often, you know, uh, people outside of the dominant factors that invent and reinvent language. Now we say that's giving me life. You know, those glasses are giving me life. I'm living for that show. I'm living for that book. You know, um and and we we're, we're the way we speak to each other will depend on how we live tomorrow. And I wanted to to portray and lay out the legacy of violence in language. It's no coincidence that two of the endeavors, uh, both war and literature, are dominated by men because both endeavors have measured themselves uh, through the destruction of bodies, right? War and literature. Literature, the way we talk about it, even the way we talk about the workshop, is a moment of conquest, of, of creation, of the assembly line. Tighten it up, clean it up, mm. cut it out, right? I'm wrestling with the muse. I killed it. I smashed it. Um, you went into that novel, Guns Blazing. And, and so war, both on the metaphysical level and the actual level, orchestrated by men, are now dominating the way we think and we have to question it, even before we get to the page. Mm. Well, there's a, a really poignant moment in the book, I mean, thinking about language and colonization as well, yeah. where a little dog um, is trying to tell his mother that he's gay, and he doesn't want to reach for the word in Vietnamese, which, you know, and he explains there didn't exist a word for queerness mm -hmm. before the French, and then the word that is left is influenced by the French word pédé, mm -hmm. which is short for pederast or pedophile, right. basically. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously he doesn't want to reach for that. He right. wants to use a new language yeah. and create a new way of talking about it. Right. Right. Um, and I thought that was a really thoughtful way of, of, of displaying the what happens when we unthinkingly use the language that's been handed to us. Right. And that yeah. it's not the only way. Yeah. We can find other ways of explaining ourselves to one another. Right. And and the the language can also be a relic of violence 100 percent. yeah yeah what what's your relationship to the vietnamese language i i use it i'm fluent in it and i had this moment you know a lot of my family is illiterate almost all of them um and and you know for for one reason or another education cut off dyslexia runs in my family so my little brother who's 21 is also dyslexic um so he he can't read either and i learned you know I, I at one point i wanted to learn how to read and write Vietnamese and translate Vietnamese literature to English. As I started learning it, I spoke to my mother and I was using new words. I spoke to my mother in Vietnamese and I would use a new word. She said, what is that, what's that word? And I thought, oh God, this is all I have left of her. You know, if I, the more Vietnamese words I learn, the further away I'm going to get from her. So I stopped. I stopped learning Vietnamese. I, I just kept, I, I can't read it, I can't write it. I just keep it in the oral tradition that I have with her because it's my one thread left with not only her, but the rest of my family. Um, it, it's my, it's the only common ground because my English is so far ahead. It's so I, I just, I, you know, consciously decided to stop my Vietnamese education. It makes a lot of sense. You kept it as the mother tongue. Yeah, and you know, didn't take it out from that right into these institutions. That yeah, yeah, it's hard it. because it's a beautiful language, and the I words bet. I learned were were amazing. But I couldn't do it. Yeah, 
It may be something you come to at a different time in your life. Hey? Right. I mean, it's all it's always there. It's all possible. Yeah. yeah. And we, we believe in reincarnation. So maybe next life too. Yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> it's all one long river. <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners, which we love to do. We really do. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.